All right. We are here with Dominic Pergani, who works for a fire department in southwest Florida. He is the special operations training coordinator for his county and has been a, in the fire service for 25 years and was originally from Connecticut. So Dominic Brigani, that's a good Irish name. Um, yeah. Yeah, or or not. Not actually ever, uh, if I'm right, never a member of MTV's Jersey Shore. No. But, but no. can although, nonetheless. Although I can throw down the meatballs and spaghetti. I know. I've seen you, man. I've seen you, and that's good. You can also, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if this is even appropriate or confidential, but uh, if at the right time you can actually squeeze squeeze your nipples and suntan lotion comes out, is that correct or still? <laughs> yeah, and the coconut flavor is gone. but Like an SPF, uh, like yeah. at least 20? Okay, yeah, that's cool. So you have been in the fire service 25 years. You're now in Florida. You start off in Connecticut, and I think you. Uh, I'm going to have you kind of talk about this. But you started your state's task force. Why don't you hit us a little bit on your on your background, Tom? Yeah, well, well the, the fire departments that I work I work for up north was um, primarily a special operations station that I put most of my time in. So we really, you know, that started in the late 80s, early 90s when technical rescue was just starting. You know, local teams were starting. There was no state task force, but it was really one honed-in little group and one station that I worked at for a while um, that that kind of brought it brought it to, to fruition. You know, from there, uh, just prior to 9/11, with all the you know terrorists, terrorist act stuff coming down, the state decided to put together a state task force. You know, there was a, a handful of people from all over the state that came together up in Hartford. You know. You know, we uh, we got the first state task force for the state of Connecticut up and running, pretty much just right after 9/11 was when we were functional. So we weren't there as a as a you know quote unquote team, although some regional teams did respond down there, uh, myself included. But uh, that was kind of the the history of you know where I came from. Uh, from there, it's, it it went on to teaching nationally based on the you know things I saw, what I did, what we did. Uh, what worked, what didn't work. Believe it or not, the the, the best thing that came out of 9-11 for most of the, the guys that taught nationally was we all came together and we got to see each other and we got to work together and we figured out all the problems, you know, not all of the problems, but a lot of the problems that, uh, you know, happens when you actually go to a response. So with that, when you went to 9-11, when you responded to, to New York, what, what did you do as far as TASCO? And what was kind of the evolution after that as far as the gaps that you guys found? It really varied daily. Um, it could be anything from, you know, bucket brigade to, uh, you know, we always say hurry up and wait and stand by and wait for the next crew to come off the pile. But, uh, you know, searching, searching holes, uh, subways. And interesting enough is one of the things before most of the national teams came in, it was all, all local assets that were, were there doing their thing. And without the amount of tons of equipment that came in, any truck that get parked on the side of the you know side of the road on Canal Street basically just got completely emptied out within the first 10 minutes and all the gear gone. Uh, but th- there was points where, hey, we need a high line to go across this pit. And uh, I was with uh, the late Billy Quick from Rescue 4, and he turned to me, and here's a very seasoned guy and been in technical rescue his uh, 25, 28 years. And he turns to me, he says, hey, kid, you know how to put up one of these things? So it's and, and based on what we had. And that's where it kind of first rang a bell to me that it's great to have the great big, huge equipment cache 
and have all this uh, equipment. But when defecation hits the cooling apparatus, we kind of have to make it happen, you know. So, you know, here we were with two ropes and an eight plate and a bunch of carabiners and, you know, made a high line. <laughs> now, is it, you uh, you lost a buddy of yours as, a, as kind of a result a few years after 9-11 yeah. from, from respiratory issues and things like that also. Yeah, that's, that's Billy. That's the guy I was just talking about. He, um, you know, came up with multiple types of cancer and pretty much was retired shortly, I don't know, probably nine months to, to a year later after the after 9-11. And then from there, it just kind of spiraled downhill over the course of the next couple of years. I think he's about four years now, I think he's gone. Yeah, you, uh, I think uh, you and some of your buddies from there were, were there when he passed away too, right? Yeah, it was kind of crazy. We, um, you know, I, I, he's one of my best friends, so I stayed in touch with him, even though I wasn't any, and it wasn't up there anymore. And uh, we basically talked two, three, four times a day. He'd always call and try to figure out like what I was doing on the job. You know, did I check my air pack and was the, was the hearse tool ready to go? And so you know, we talked a bunch, and I just kind of got this funny feeling that uh, things weren't going too well. His, he was going into kidney failure, going doing dialysis. And a couple times a week, we decided. I called all the all the instructors that we all worked with together, and a couple of his buddies from across the United States, and decided to show up and say, "Hey, you know." And uh, we showed up, and that night he died. So you know, we were there to put him to rest and kind of help out his family through, uh, you know, kind of a tragic thing since that he wasn't really per se scheduled to die by the doctors, you know. Yeah. That's tough. So after 9-11, there's obviously uh, a lot of people that are involved in that. Basically, a lot more funding, a little bit more organization came about, and, and a lot of things related to, to task force and, and tech rescue after that then. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, training budgets started opening up. A lot of all the grant money started coming down the pipe, and that lasted for, you know, probably a good five to eight years. But in that time, everybody wanted technical rescue training. I actually left connecticut that's how i got to florida as i left left connecticut to work with a company that taught pretty much internationally you know, at the at the time was one of the largest companies uh that did technical rescue in the states and that's kind of where i made my network of friends learned learned the craft really learned the craft because i was a very traditional by the book instructor you know we were taught certain things we're in a curriculum, never to deviate from this, but it's not until you start teaching nationally and you start seeing what other jurisdictions are doing and what other instruct instructors are teaching that you realize there's more than one way to skin a cat. Right. Uh, yeah, and I think I think that kind of builds into what, what we're kind of really wanting to talk about for the most part is some of your philosophy as far as is there is not one, just one way to do it. And a lot of times, you know, we learn these things in whatever class we take, uh, a rope one, rope two, you know, collapse, confined space, whatever. And and that's pretty much the standard. So here's the deal. These are the knots you're going to know. These are the knots you're going to utilize. These are This is the hardware you're going to use. This is this is NFP 1883. We are not going to deviate from this. Right. When in reality, there's a there's a gap, and we'll probably talk about that more later, but th there's a gap between reality and, and training that that there are no real rules for that that's a huge fold. 
And a lot of people aren't prepared for that because they're taught the one way to do it. This is the right way to do it. And this is how it's going to, this is how it's going to roll. We're going to have mirrored systems on belay. We're going to do this. We're using 12.5 millimeter, you know, (laughs) nylon, nylon rope. And this is how it's going to roll. Once you go outside of that bell curve, people get uneasy. And, and so a little bit with your philosophy, I know that the first time we met quite a few years ago, we were, we were introduced through a mutual friend, although you're, you actually work at the department I used to work at. We just weren't there at the same time. Is we busted out the rope bags, busted out the coffee, and it was pretty much game on of show and tell of, uh, of freaking rope skills and, and crap like that. And I looked down, <laughs> and I remember knowing your background, uh, you opened up your, your bag of goodness there, and I looked down and saw a, a climbing I think it was a, a black diamond, uh, yeah, Cam- Camelot, Camelot, yeah. right? A spring-loaded camming device, and I'm like, "What the shit, man?" What's he doing? Uh, with yeah, that? What, yeah, <laughs> it was, you didn't have it for climbing, and so you know, in the end, I realized you know you had a little bit different approach where it was probably more disciplinary, uh, multidisciplinary approach, uh, looking at other things. Can you talk a little bit about you know what your philosophy was and how it's changed, looking at other other avenues, other disciplines of, of rescue? Well, yeah, it, it, it definitely, you know, it's not getting pigeonholed into what you were taught by the book is a big thing. That whole thing where I was talking about before, teaching nationally, and, you know, the whole, you know, we go on a trip to go teach somewhere, and you're in, in a hotel room with another instructor, and you're busting out all this, you know, PowerPoints and whatnot, and here we do this, we do that, and you're like, wow, so that sharing and information is is incredible and you know incredibly blessed to have that opportunity to be able to share where you know the guys that are on the task force that that don't do that um don't get that experience you know just looking for other resources and sources uh, on how others do things and then a lot of it in my mind has to do with on a, on a personal level right like the self-reflection of your skill sets and your training methodologies and how does that apply to the incident because you know as well as i do we could train all day long, even do scenario training once you know the basics, but then you get to the call and it's nothing like you've ever trained on. Right. So at, at that point is you have to set the urgency level, you know, is, can we take our time with this or does it happen happen now, you know? That's uh, the analogy of, you know, training to be a fighter. If you're a, if you're a kung fu guy, you know, trained on all this kata and form for 10 years and you're a black belt but you've never been punched in the nose you don't know what's going to happen when you feel that sting you know <laughs> right. yeah uh, and i think that's it man i think a lot of people probably have grown into what how you think about things as far as a multidisciplinary approach looking for other ways to do it better ways to do it different ways of doing it when you don't have all the equipment that you know that's what we do a whole bunch and i think that usually grows out of getting burned you know running into a thing where you were that textbook guy at one point and then realized man this it's probably i should probably look at other other avenues yeah, man you know there's a whole it, world out there <laughs> right i think you know after failures when we when we learn that that maybe that that textbook isn't uh isn't all it's cracked up to be a lot of times so with that, you know, I think part of it that I'm interested in, in talking to you about, too, is being able to look at your cache of equipment or what, what's on that truck or what's in that bag that you're, you know, you're doing mountain rescue or you're doing, you know, something in special operations as a federal team or you're on a task force and looking at the equipment that you have and figuring out all the different uses for it or different ways you can employ that. And I remember a story you told me years ago on uh, an incident. I can't remember what it was, but I think it was, it was involving one of those large cement underground pipes that they were putting down 
in one of these big kind of holes or crevasse type deals and it rolled onto a guy's leg ended up where most people would take those airbags or those cushions or anything down to where he was and start kind of stabilizing that and then trying to lift that off which probably wouldn't be the best incident where you actually laid a high anchor across uh, that ditch area that that pipe was laid into and put webbing underneath that and then use the airbags on the high anchor and just lifted the bags which the webbing was on top of which consequently lifted the pipe up right right yeah you gotta you gotta really think outside the box and that's the, the whole point of knowing your craft and and using the, the the basic skills as tools in the toolbox and then then putting those tools to use in, in that particular incident that you were talking about was uh it was a trench rescue where a 24 inch culvert pipe fell on top of a guy that was in the hole and the hole was really soft mud so you really couldn't get anything underneath the pipe that could lift it and so this guy's legs are trapped underneath it what we ended up doing was putting some two inch webbing around the bottom of the pipe and then coming up a couple double double wrapped enough where it would go up to an airbag that was sitting on six by sixes that was held five feet in the air with a crib stack hmm. so as you lifted lifted the airbag it pull, pulled the strap upwards and it was just enough to get the guy's leg out so you know that was a neat way of doing it we had another one uh probably about two weeks ago almost the same scenario guy was using uh one of those contraptions that packs the soil around the edge of a edge of the trench there was a trench box in in the trench box in the trench which is remarkable because i didn't think anybody actually used them <laughs> but uh this guy the the ground compactor slipped and he went down underneath it landed in the bottom of the trench the pipe moved and he got stuck in between the pipe and the the, the ground compactor hmm. and it was one of those things where do we need to go full out on this scenario, right? We got a trench box. The air's been monitored already. Everything's great. So let's just get in the trench and use the spreaders, a little crib and, and, and a hydraulic spreader, just to move the pipe three inches to get his leg out. So, boom, there's another way of doing it based on the scenario. That's cool. If you could talk uh, a little bit about, about the evolution of the changes that you've seen in tech rescue over the years, uh, shifting from different diameters to mirrored belay systems to potentially doing single rope techniques and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's evolved greatly. I remember when I first got into it, we were using five-eighths rope, mirrored systems. Everything was huge, extra-large. The carabiners required a truck to carry everything everywhere. Um, to, you know, then moving into the world of half-inch rope. You know, now potentially you're seeing some systems built with just a single-line rope, SRT, half-inch rope. Technology is building better ropes. They're building more advanced equipment, simplifying things. You know, like the, I, I love the uh, CMC MPD because it makes, you can, it, it takes I don't know what seven or eight pieces of equipment out of the equation. You can turn that from the belay into a haul system back to a belay system without doing any uh, hokey hitches or using a, four, a little mini four to one like the Aztec to, to do a load release. So all this equipment that's coming out today, you got to look at it and, and don't just buy it because the rep says it's really cool. Put it through its courses and see if it really pertains to you. And if you guys can use it, that's I think that's the key to the 
whole evolution process too is seeing what's out there and then discerning what is you know what is cool and what really works right you know, one of the other things i wanted to hit on some of the obstacles that that you run into you know being the, the training coordinator for a county special operations group for tech rescue is when you're when you're bringing things up that are outside the normal textbook or the normal curriculum on ways of doing things what do you find is your your biggest friction point your biggest obstacles you know is it, is it admin that that doesn't understand what an authority having jurisdiction is or is it is it the mindset of these guys through you know they've been doing this for 12 years that see it as a hey, we are always going to do a figure eight man we're always going to do this. Yeah. there needs to be a safety to this or you know what is the biggest friction points that that you come across for for people wanting to potentially evolve or think potentially outside the the normal bell curve well i, I think a lot of it has to do with misinformation. You, you got a lot of people in the fire service that have been there for 20 years. And if you look at when the standard 1983 came out, a lot of those people are still in the fire service. And, you know, like me, sometimes I, I don't keep up on everything. And, uh, you know, a lot of things have changed since 1983. As far as there's still people out there that think that if you use a rope in an actual call on, on, on an incident that you have to throw it out. You know, that was that was an original nineteen eighty three standard that you couldn't use a rope unless if it was if it was put put in service. It had to be a brand new rope. So people still think that. People still think that there's fifteen to one safety factors for systems when it in reality it is uh, that's something that the it's a manufacturer standard not for actually building the systems. But the obstacles from that you know, turn into simple things like, okay, this a, a team's been using uh, a dropper eight on a line for uh, making a pigtail for confined space, and that's great. You know, we know the stats on a dropper eight; it's it's good. It's good in one direction. It's not good in another direction if it needs to be hauled. So it'll actually roll the knot. So you know, telling them that they got to do a butterfly instead of a dropper eight was like upsetting the whole world their whole world shattered hmm. you know this is what we've been doing for the last 30 years the way it was taught in our little stick figure book that was written <laughs> right right um you know converting here's another one you know like you got a, a, a prusik, double prusik belay and a bar rack well if you try to convert your bar rack into a hole, there's a whole lot of things that you have to go ahead and do. But why not just convert the double prussic filet, take a bite, a Gibbs and a carabiner, and turn it into the hall, and you get it done. Right. You know, uh, so save save a lot of time. And really, is, is, is the functionality of that hall the same? Yes. Is it pulling the rescuer possibly from a different point or or the victim from a different point, yes, but that's why all these systems are built the way they are. It's why the manufacturers have standards. So those connections are going to be valid connections, and there's no reason why you can't convert a belay into a home line. Right, and I think you and I talked about talked about like just the safety that surrounds what we do now and people that are coming into Tech Rescue now. Where you know we can look back at you know some of the you know the classic like on old rescue nine one one with William Shatner man one of the 
balls out, baddest ass freaking roof rescues from FDNY done. Uh, I think it was in Manhattan where there yeah, was no anchor. Right. Yeah. It was no, no, yeah, exactly, man. And I think two of those guys lost their lives in 9 11, man, that were involved in that rescue. But, um, but, uh, dude, there was no anchor. Dude laid on his back, did, I think, uh, uh, what was it, like a double or triple wrap, spine wrap on his carabiner, was the meat anchor. Two dudes laid on top of him and lowered a dude down, lowered a fireman down. Uh, the guy guy he was rescuing jumped onto him, like kind of shockloaded that entire system. I think they took him down one more floor, and, and some guys pulled him in with some pike poles. But uh, And then as soon as they finished that one, they had to get up and go do the same rescue on the other side of the building. That, yeah. was, that wasn't even Kern Mantle rope, man. That was the... Uh, old like, manila laid you know three wrap deal but they made it happen you know and now we look at it and we're like hey we're not even sending somebody over the edge unless we've got a, a mirrored system 12.5 millimeter current mantle rope with you know brake strength of 9,000 pounds and we're using an FPG rated everything and i'm not saying you know we don't need to be concerned but you've got people that like do not want to go over that edge unless they they've got a, a a mirrored system or a belay line on them and obviously you know you've done a lot of work with us and you know, a lot of a lot of people we are training and we're we're doing that with, you know, a seven point five single rope and yeah, right. and, and just understanding <laughs> the system. But you know, we talked about where where did this this come from to where you can almost become too safety oriented that it's almost becomes more dangerous, if you will, you know, because you don't understand yeah. a reliance on your equipment or what that strength is or how it actually works. You just build in all the safety, uh, which takes time, which takes a while to set up, which takes more manpower, more equipment. And meanwhile, you know, your casualty still there, not getting rescued. So, you know, I think you and I talked about this for a while, and I think a lot of it may come from uh it's not not a performance error of the equipment uh very no. few times have we ever heard of oh uh, yeah that rope snapped that carabiner you know broke or, or this has occurred or that occurred or the prusik failed it's normally always a, a human error yeah yeah i mean that that's one of the biggest questions i've, I've always had was I, I see a department you know numerous departments have truck companies and truck companies have roof roof rope rescue bags Right, it's a single line, half inch rope in a bag. Why is it okay for a truck company to have a roof bag to make a rescue, but then a tech team to go make a rescue has to have, you know, multiple anchor points, multiple ropes, piggybacks, e-hauls, you know, bar racks, prussic belays, all this craziness to do almost the exact same rescue. Why is it okay for one and not the other? And it's really based on urgency and who, who who's there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting when you look at it, you know, from a – and, you know, Jeff and I hit on this before too. When you look at a system safety factor and, you know, the misguidedness of, of oh, it's a, there's a 15 to 1 and all this other crap that went on a while ago that people were, were believing to be real. When you look at that entire system, you know, you may have your 40 kilonewton carabiners and your 12.5 NFPA 1983 rope that's, you know, at almost a 9K but then you look down throughout your whole system, and you know a lot of people are you know have eight millimeter nylon nylon pressics. Uh, that's you know at most usually right around eleven kilonewtons, and and you go through there, and, and yeah. things just don't add up. You know what what are you using for your for your anchors? Is it flat webbing? Is it is it tubular webbing? Is it you know all those things make a difference? And when you look at it as a system, you see a lot of inconsistencies. Man, you'll have like a super strong this and really not a you know not a real strong this yet this is holding your weight and uh and i think a lot of it fundamentally comes down to what you talked about before is is this is a craft and a lot of people i don't think think of it as a craft everybody hates it if somebody calls you an sme or anything like that because i think you just the same as us or 
like never never <laughs> call me a subject matter expert never call me that at all i think we're students of the game and to be students of the game you're always evolving you're always looking into different ways of doing it and what your performance is for this material what's nylon 66 compared to your aramid fibers compared to your your polyester and what's the static load of this as far as a drop and and things like that and i think that's where things lack is people just don't understand necessarily the equipment or how things how things work with the IDs camming versus how a Grigri 2 works or things like that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. The know your craft is it's paramount on being a, a, a rope technician, whatever whatever discipline you're in, you need to know your craft. Constantly honing those skill sets and don't get complacent. I remember that one of the first classes I took, the instructor was up there and reciting tubular nylon webbing, 4,500 pounds, blah, 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 6,000 pounds for flat webbing. But but you don't need to know that was you know w- what was told back then. Well, yeah, you do, <laughs> and it's not just for the instructor to rattle off information on how much he knows, but everyone really should know their craft, know know what their capable equipment is capable of, and how can you stretch it? You know, can you lift that car with that airbag? I don't know. It says we can, but can we add more weight to it? What'll happen? You know, let's try it. That's the only way you're going to find out is honing those original skill sets and then finding out a million other ways to do it. And I'm the late Billy Quick. I'm going to quote him a lot here because he was uh, definitely a mentor in, in, in my uh, my career was being a fireman is like being a magician. It's knowing a million little tricks. And I think, you know, that's that's a good segue into what we were talking about before is when we talk about reality versus training. And I think too often you know, I think it's it's extremely important no matter what your your discipline is, whether you know, you're you're a high end specialized medic or or you're a specialized rescue guy or, or whatever you are, is what makes you really good is you're a master of the basics, but can up your game with the tools in your toolbox to pull out some voodoo stuff, uh, to pull out those tricks. But the only way you're gonna really learn to push those things is to change the way we do training. And in training, I think so much we we just training becomes the bell curve, man. So all right, we're gonna change on you know we're gonna train on these JPRs today. And I'm a huge fan of job performance requirements. The problem is is when you look at a job performance requirement, is it doesn't tell you the technique and it doesn't tell you the equipment. So I don't think people push the extremes of what a JPR is really. You know, so yeah, I can still accomplish that. But what if we didn't have this? What if we didn't have that? What if we were waiting on the 15th floor and the bag is down in the truck and we've got to do this now because of a variable that's out of our control from weather to the environment to the patient crashing on us or something like that. So what is that pace type of methodology? What is our primary alternate contingency and emergency? And I don't see a lot of people pushing the limits in training, which is where you're really going to up your game and realize other ways you can use your equipment, other ways that that uh, potentially things are going to fail, right? It's, it's just as important to see what your equipment can do as, as yeah. it is to how you can create a failure point for your equipment. So you're like, all right, that's the that's the point of no no return at that point with this this piece. <laughs> yeah, the, that that the pace method methodology of training is is uh, definitely a great way of getting a team and 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 all the different levels of of knowledge on one page. You know, the like you said before, though, the important part is knowing knowing those original skills, knowing them inside out and backwards. Because if you don't know that, you really can't go to the alternate and the contingency. You have to know the original plan. But with the pace pace methodology is great because 
in training, if you utilize it, you have the, the new guys say do a pickoff, and then you have the more experienced guys. You change the scenario up a little bit when they're on rope, and you take away a few things, and you and you have them make it happen with what they have now. So you're challenging them, and and in training, that's that's the toughest part. You put together a training where you get a mixed bunch of people, some with experience, some some have absolutely none. You know, you're if you go too much with it, you you, you lose the the new ones. They just kind of, I, I call it airport man. They just kind of fly around, do touchdowns, and and don't really pay attention. And then if you make it too simple, then all the senior members, you know, they're getting disinterested and they don't want to come to training anymore because they're bored out of their mind. So with with um, you know varying the the training and how you, and how you can do it through through pace is is it's pretty cool. It works it works really well. Yeah, and I think even adding that in as a you know being in your position or the one running the training is even putting perturbations or obstacles in the way of, of your guys that that do know the basics that that are in control of that have been on that team for a while is even being able to run a scenario for them that, that may be on on a rooftop where they've got to do a pick or they've got to do whatever and being able to take things out of their bag before they go so when they get get there they're expecting something and what they have is what they have and just seeing how that goes on you know creating puzzles for these people to have to force them outside that bell curve force them outside their, I don't know, their comfort zone, if you will, and be able to come up with solutions that, that will work, you know, and when you have a mannequin and a basket or something like that, that, you know, you can afford yourself to, to try new things and to fail at that point to see, see what you can do, what will work and what doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Incorporating different disciplines, you know, we're not just rock breakers, we're also medics. So then you have to incorporate your medic techniques based on the scenario that you're working on. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's where a lot of times the rubber meets the road is a lot of people separate the the medical side, you know, whatever your level is from a first responder to an EMT to a paramedic to, to a PA or physician that's involved in these rescues and rescue. And they're two different two different things, right? We've got the medical and we got the rescue when in, in reality you're, you're doing a casualty management. And so depending on those injuries that you find on that casualty is going to really dictate how you even package them. Uh, to do your haul or to do your lower and uh, you know am I going to do something vertical in a, in a skedco if I've got a guy that's got an unstable pelvis no man that that dude's going to have to go horizontal at that point and and being able to to blend the two I think is where where the magic happens yeah man yeah man it's you know that's the difference between stay and play and yank and shank <laughs> yeah no, exactly. And, uh, and and the other side too, man, is I think, you know, saying that with mannequins is we see this all the time too, is is you almost begin to get a, a little bit of a complacency when when we're always using mannequins in there to where that edge transition really isn't really that good. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? is like we, we'll, we'll bend the back of a mannequin in, in a way that is probably going to cause some sort of crazy-ass paralysis if it was a, a human in there. We just get complacent with that, yeah, which is that other thing. On the last topic is something we talked about is a little bit of you know, comparing, and we do it with a bunch of different groups out there that have different specialties, but to, to even think of the, if we would compare the technical rescuer to, to like the MMA fighter, you know, preparing for a fight is, you know, the MMA guy isn't just learning ground game, right, jiu-jitsu or, or something like that. He's not just learning, you know, boxing or, or striking, standing up. It's, it's a combination of a lot of things, right? They have their boxing coach in there. They got a, a jiu-jitsu coach in there. They have a nutritionist. They have a cardio guy. They've got all these members that actually create this kind of holistic person, which would be technically like a craft, a fighting craft at that point. 
So when we look at it from a tech rescue standpoint, what are some of those things, you know, just offhand, I'm thinking you need to have a good understanding of, of physics, man. You know, you need to understand that friction's your friend when you're lowering, friction's your enemy when you're hauling. And then taking that even further, you know, the byproduct of friction is heat. So, you know, how does my material that I'm even using adapt to the heat? You know, we, we had these conversations with some of the ropes that you see coming out by, you know, folks that, that aren't really knowledgeable yeah. in anything doing with rescue and, you know, the, the Negra ropes that are out there that are polypropylene and they're selling them as rescue ropes that have a melting point that's like I, I, you can literally hold your finger on a flame at the level that that stuff melts and just disintegrates to, and you're holding your finger there like, are you serious? Uh, Where in reality, everything we do in rescue does heat, but going off point a little bit there, you know, what are some of those other things besides, you know, materials and physics that that really create a holistic technical rescuer, do you think? Well, you know, technical rescue, there's there's pretty much, there's five disciplines that you, five, sixth, if you, you know, you count the, the, the whole medical portion of it that you have to be a master craft. And it's it's not exactly, you know, like Susie Homemaker guy that can, can do his own electrician work and do his own plumbing. So he's a master, you know, he's a jack of all trades and a master of none. Mm-hmm. We're, we're talking lives. So yeah, you do have to know and master as much as you possibly can. The, you know, rope, confined space, trench, structural collapse, Within structural collapse, there's there's five disciplines in that, you know, swift water, and then then of course we get into medicine. So there's a lot of work that needs to go into learning the craft, yeah, and 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 just continually staying on it is is the, the point of it, and that, and I, I think it all brings it back to just self reflection. You know, you you can be a part of the, the most badass team in the world, and you could be on that team with being a mediocre rescuer. Right. Right. So if you don't self-reflect and, and, and look at yourself and say, you know, how can I be better at this? What it's, it's pretty much written everywhere. Socrates wrote about it. Uh, Einstein wrote about it. All the all the greats, you know, and about how, you know, the highest form of human excellence is to question oneself or others and other techniques. It's in the Bible. You know, how many times in the Bible does it say, I mean, a man should examine himself? So, you know, the only way to get better at something and to be in a better version of yourself is to take a look at what you got, what you're doing, your techniques, how you operate, and and make it better. Right. Yeah, I agree, man. And I think that's that may be a problem with, with a lot of groups, uh, especially on teams that aren't that active, is is you know what you just discussed was really you know is epistemology how do you know you know something right and it's a question of of all the ages and there's a lot of different disciplines and some are you know by the book you know i've studied it in the book but does that really equate to you knowing it if you if you read it but never actually performed it you know there's experience uh which is hey you know how to do it but you don't know all the things behind it so i think it is a holistic type of environment to try and try and better yourself. Lennison, man, ending up, uh, last question. You ever meet Snooky, man? Never met Snooky. All right. Although I've been, I've met, uh, Paulie D though. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We talked with him one time. Really? Yeah. Is he D bag or is he cool? <laughs> he was cool. All right. All right. All right. That's cool. He was cool. He can throw down the meatballs and spaghetti. I bet he can, man. All right. We'll get a video doing that one of these days and we'll post it on here, man. It's pretty badass. It'll change people's lives. Hey, man, listen, take it easy, brother. And I appreciate your time. You too. Stay long go. All right, man. See you, bro. Bye.